Welcome to r slash, a podcast where I read the best posts from across Reddit. Today's subreddit is r slash pro revenge, where OP completely destroys a toxic cult. Our next Reddit post is from Throw All Away. This story isn't about me, but about two people that I'm friends with. We'll call them Ray and Justin. Some background. Ray and Justin grew up in an extremely restrictive, insular religious community that borders on being a cult. They both read a lot from a young age, even though reading outside of their religion's material was discouraged. And so, both of them grew increasingly skeptical and dissatisfied with their environment due to having this peek into the outside world. In high school, this shared mindset brought them together and they started secretly dating. For context, dating was absolutely strictly forbidden in this religious community. You went straight from single to married with zero in between. So, when Justin and Ray's parents caught them dating, they forced them to get married. To be clear, it wasn't even like they were passionately hugging. They were basically just driving around together and holding hands in the downtown square where all the kids hung out. Very tame, sheltered kid stuff. Ray and Justin started living together as husband and wife, but unfortunately for their families, putting those two together doubled their resiliency. And together, they cooked up a plan to get out. They set up a secret bank account at a bank outside of the religious community's influence since their families had access to their accounts. And everyone who worked at the main bank was also in the same community, and they gossiped about everyone's financial transactions. They started squirreling away money in small amounts that the family wouldn't question being missing from the paychecks. When they were 20 years old, they finally had enough money to start over, and they got out. They basically left their house in the dead of night with nothing but what they could fit in their car and uprooted their lives to live across the country. Pretty quickly after they moved, they decided to get amicably divorced since they never wanted to be married in the first place. They still lived together for a while and basically became platonic roommates in each other's only family. Over time, they started dating other people. Some partners were scared off by the weird relationship between them, but most got it and understood that Justin and Ray had basically bonded through mutual trauma. I also met both of them during this time and we became close friends. This whole time, both their families and other members of their community were relentlessly harassing them. People were showing up at their house at all hours. And they also had reason to believe that people were trying to steal their identities. Though, fortunately, they put a freeze on their credit, so nothing ever came of it. Then, Justin had a bad accident. A really bad accident. He was on his bike, and a car blew through a stop sign without slowing down and plowed right into him. He had to be rushed to the hospital and landed in the ICU. Ray was his emergency contact, and I was with her and some friends when she got the call. I immediately drove her to the hospital with a couple of the other people, and she was melting down, understandably. When we got there, the hospital staff wouldn't let everybody in, but they would let Ray in. She came out periodically to let us know what was going on. Justin wasn't unconscious, but he was totally out of it and didn't seem to know that Ray was there. This was probably just caused by painkillers, but Ray was convinced that he had permanent brain damage, and basically the group of us were just soothing her and reassuring her that it would be fine. A friend of ours who also worked at the hospital stopped by whenever she could to calm down Ray. We'd been there all night and part of the day at this point, and the medical staff was giving us reason to be hopeful. But things got worse. To this day, no one knows how they found out, but 14 hours after Justin's accident, his parents, uncles, and grandfather showed up. They immediately had all of us removed from the ICU, Ray included. Unfortunately, as his ex-wife, she was no longer his legal next of kin and had no rights against his blood family. At this point, she was absolutely hysterical and inconsolable. 
She was convinced that Justin's family would hurt him. I'm ashamed to say that the three of us who were there with her thought that she was overreacting. We all knew that Ray and Justin had a really screwed up situation, but it wasn't like his own family would do something to impede his recovery. Ray was getting angry with us for trying to calm her down and tried to explain that, according to their religion, she and Justin deserved punishment from God, and only the greatest suffering could cause repentance and redemption. She said their families embraced this thinking and they wanted us to suffer because it would prove they did the wrong thing by leaving and suffering would drive them back to the fold. She said that as long as Justin was with his family, he wouldn't be safe. Our friend who worked for the hospital came and found Ray at this point. She made Ray swear up and down that she wouldn't tell anyone she told her this because she could get in deep trouble for releasing privileged information to someone who wasn't authorized. But she had caught wind that Justin's parents were aggressively demanding the hospital release him into their care, and they were involving lawyers. The hospital was currently refusing because Justin wasn't stable enough to leave, but our friend warned Ray that as soon as Justin got to be stable or the lawyer scared the hospital enough, it's possible that the parents would be able to take Justin. This shocked us! Realizing that Justin's parents were not only willing to remove Justin from the hospital that had saved his life in the condition that he was in, but that they were actively trying to do it made us finally get it for the first time why Ray was going out of her head with fear. At this point, Ray snapped into do-or-die mode. Convinced that Justin was about to literally die if she didn't act, she decided that she would do everything in her power to start a metaphorical fire at home so that Justin's family would want to run back home and put it out. And that wasn't hard to do because she had a lot of dirt on her family. Like a madwoman, Ray started blowing the whistle all over Justin's family. She called the IRS fraud hotline and detailed all the ways that the family business was committing tax fraud. She submitted a tip to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms about how that same family business was illegally selling firearms without a license and without following any of their proper protocols and was knowingly selling guns to convicted felons. She reported one of Justin's uncles for owning several guns as a convicted felon. She also reported Justin's mom's unlicensed daycare business, which was apparently extremely shady, including having over 30 kids packed into one house, with Justin's mom as the only adult and many of the childcare duties being farmed out to Justin's 12 and 14-year-old sisters. She called Child Protective Services on Justin's uncle and his parents for keeping their kids out of school, and in one case, for physical abuse. In all of these reports, Ray provided extensive details. She finished her calls and emails and waited. We all waited for several hours, and nothing happened. Then, miraculously, Justin became lucid enough to understand what was going on and make his own decisions. And he immediately kicked his family out. From there, Justin began a slow but steady path to recovery. In all the relief and excitement to see Justin on the mend, we'd almost forgotten about Ray's campaign of desperation. Until a couple of weeks later, when the screaming voicemail started pouring into both of them. First, their family business was being investigated by the IRS. Then, the daycare was under investigation. At first, Ray felt a little guilty, but then she was like, You know what? No regrets. They would have killed Justin. From what they've been able to piece together in the year and a half since this happened, the business has gone over and the daycare has been shuttered. The uncle is six months into a new five-year prison sentence for firearm possession. Child Protective Services investigated, which completely scared the family, but nothing really came of it, which is especially sad in the case of the cousin being physically abused. 
That said, the parents are now too scared to keep their kids home from school. And with the unlicensed daycare shut down, the mom isn't exploiting her daughter's labor anyway, so she has no incentive to keep them home. So, at the very least, Justin's younger siblings are getting an education. Justin and Ray are both happy and thriving. Justin, unfortunately, will never fully recover from the accident. He has some permanent neurological damage that results in tremors. But he's just pumped to be alive and he can work a full-time job. And he can still be pretty physically active, so as far as I'm concerned, he wins. Our next Reddit post is from Dashant. I was working at a corporate sports bar at the time. I was barely making over minimum wage, no insurance, no raises, no future. New store management came in, and it was clear that they were cleaning house, which is to say firing all the old staff and hiring their people. This was somewhat standard. Labor laws in my area allow firing for almost any reason. I'd been down that road before. I needed a paycheck until I found a new job, so I played by the rules. I did every stupid thing they said. I saw other, more dedicated people fall by the wayside. Eventually, management needed a corporate policy violation to fire me. Finally, one day, they changed the time clock an hour ahead and fired me for being one hour late to work. Okay, whatever. They paid me for the total number of hours work. They were just fabricating the lateness for company policy. After I found out that they were fighting my unemployment claim, I filed a formal complaint with the liquor bureau in my state. Their own clock system said that I was an hour late. Therefore, their official paperwork said that they were selling alcohol an hour after last call. The fines cost hundreds of dollars per violation, plus an automatic license suspension after a certain number of violations, and every bar transaction for that hour was a possible violation. I quickly got corporate attention. My last check was double-checked for the hours that I worked and overnighted to my front door. It was a cashier's check, not a standard payroll check. I eventually had to sign a form saying that they weren't selling alcohol after hours and that they would stop filing frivolous appeals against my unemployment benefits. The general manager was replaced two months after I left, and they had repeated staffing problems trying to fill my shoes. Corporate still gives me stellar job references to this day. OP, you just clock blocked them. Our next Reddit post is from Lexmeet. This happened around 2012, back when I used to live in Southern Europe. I was a university student in a remote rural place. I had just moved to a new apartment, and naturally my first order of business was to make sure that I have a running internet connection. However, because the place where I was living was so remote, there was only one internet service provider available. You didn't like that provider? Too bad. Anyway, I signed the necessary paperwork in time, moved to the new place, set up the router and all, and thankfully my connection is fine. That is, until day 3 or 4 when, out of nowhere, my internet connection dies. Okay, no problem. I call the ISP to open a ticket. The representative tells me that they'll get back to me soon. A few days pass by and I get nothing, so I decide to call them again. The rep tells me they're still investigating the problem and that they'll get back to me soon. Now, this is the point where I'm starting to get frustrated. I know that the internet in my area is fine. In fact, my next-door neighbor's internet connection works great. So, the problem must be something that's easily fixable, right? Wrong. A week passes by and I call them again. This time, the rep tells me that they've investigated the issue and the problem is officially of unknown origin. Which means that they can't give me an ETA for the fix. I hang up the phone feeling sad and perplexed. As I contemplate my internetless existence, the representative's words echo in my mind. Unknown origin. Unknown we, origin. Can't give you an ETA. we can't give you an ETA. Slowly, my sadness transforms into denial. How is this possible? 
My phone connection still works, so the line is there, and I know for a fact that everyone in the area has a stable internet connection. This must be a simple bug that is easily fixable. This can only mean one thing. Some idiot hasn't been doing his job correctly. My denial turns into anger. How dare they tell me that they can't give me an ETA? This should be illegal. What if my job depends on my internet connection? Not to mention that internet access is a basic human right. They're denying me my rights by not giving me an ETA. At this point, the issue stops being about the internet connection. It's about the principle of the matter. As a human being and a customer, I'm entitled to an ETA. I call the ISP again, and I try to explain my flawless reasoning. No luck. The poor representative who listens to my rant tells me that the only thing that I can do is open a new ticket. Shocked by my own inability to define my fate, I accept this offer and hang up. And then, a magnificent idea is born. Since the only thing that I can do is open a new ticket, then this is exactly what I'm going to do. From that point on, I was calling my ISP provider two to five times per day. Each time, I was telling the representative the same thing. Here's the issue. I know that there are multiple tickets with my name on them already, but I want you to open a new one. Most of the reps were pretty amused by my story. Everyone complied. A month later, yes, a month passed without the issue being fixed. I get a call from the regional tech executive of the ISP. It goes something like this. In the middle of this long, angry rant, the executive says, You must stop opening tickets. You're flooding our ticketing system. At first, I was shocked at how aggressive the executive was. He was clearly one step away from starting to call me names, and I knew the only reason this didn't happen was because the calls were recorded. And then, I got a visible, glorious erection. You see, my friends, this is the point when I realized that I was winning. Well, are you going to give me an ETA for a fix? We can't give you an ETA. The problem is of an unknown origin. Then, I guess I'll just keep opening tickets. The executive hung up on me. To cut a long story short, this exchange renewed my passion for crushing the souls of those who had wronged me. So, I kept opening tickets at the same pace for another 30 to 40 days. I estimate that in the 70 days it took them to fix this issue, I opened more than 250 tickets. One day my phone rings. It's an ISP representative who says, Is this Mr. OP? Your problem's been resolved, and everyone here is talking about you. Indeed, on that same day my internet connection was restored. The funny thing about this is that I had internet this whole time. Remember my next door neighbor? She was kind enough to let me use her Wi-Fi password since day one. So, I haven't run into any issues with companies lately, but I know that if I ever do, I can just publish a video on my YouTube channel explaining the problem and asking all of my fans to submit tickets on my behalf. (laughs) When that day comes, I'm pretty certain that they'll resolve my issue very quickly. That was r slash pro revenge, and if you like this content, be sure to follow my podcast because I put out new Reddit podcast episodes every single day. I put out new Reddit videos every single day.